I invite you tonight to turn to the book of Nehemiah as we return here to our look at Nehemiah. Of course, last week with our fellowship, we, we kind of took some time away from this in, in our VBS week, and so we, we will make it through these 13 chapters here before too long. As we have gotten to the second half of the book of Nehemiah, we have begun to see the rebuilding of the people of Israel that has taken place or is, or is taking place as the story unfolds before us. Uh, as we look, examine the character of leadership in the book of Nehemiah, God has called all those who follow him to be leaders for him, to have influence on the lives of others towards the things of God. It doesn't matter who we are or where we are, how old we are, or who God's put in our lives. If we know him, we're called to influence others towards the things of God in whatever ways that we can. And Nehemiah certainly is one who illustrates that, even in in the practical things that he did in leading the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem, constantly pointing the people to God and pointing the people to uh, who he is and, and how they can trust him. And now, as they finish the, the project, he now has begun this, they've begun this process of revival and reformation in the city there. And the last couple times we've, we've looked at um, the response of the people to God's word and the response of the people to their sin and, and taken away from that how we properly are called to respond to the word of God and to our sin in our own lives. And as we go through life, There are moments in our lives where commitment is necessary. You and I cannot go through life without coming to points of our lives that requires extra steps of commitment. Uh, A world world thinks we can. We want to float through and not have to commit and just kind of be on one side, you know, not really on one side or the other. But if we're going to truly live in this life and live in a way God has called us, we're going to run into these these, these opportunities and points of our lives. We come to a point of decision, and that decision requires our entire being. And as I thought about this, if you wanted one, you know, an illustration of something that, that isn't spiritual, it's something that, 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 that certainly, though, happens in the lives of people. I, I, I take someone who's joining the military. That's a decision that's not to be taken lightly. And when it's all said and done, that, that man or woman who enlists themselves to the armed services of the United States makes a commitment with their lives. In fact, that commitment is something they actually verbalize when they, when they take the oath to, of, of joining the armed service of the United States, which goes as follows. I do solemnly affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of officers appointed over me according to regulations and a uniform code of military justice, so help me God." That, that path that someone may take into the military isn't some frivolous decision that someone makes. It, it takes thorough thought. It takes commitment. You're, you're joining yourself to something bigger than yourself, and it requires your entire being. And, and so, too, is putting away our sin and God and serving him with our lives. It's a commitment we have to make in our lives. It isn't enough to simply acknowledge we have sin. It isn't enough to even say, well, we agree with the word of God. No, true spiritual growth 
is found in doing something with what God has said and done in our own hearts. And so tonight, we're going to talk about this idea from Nehemiah chapter 10 of how do we properly commit ourselves to serving, to obeying God. When God gave his law to his people, he required their commitment to follow and obey him. You you go all the way back to when God led the people out of Egypt and he gave them his law at Mount Sinai. He entered into a covenant with them that they had to commit that they would follow the things of God. And now... As the people repent from their sin here in Jerusalem and turn back to God, they commit once again to following him. You know, as one author put it, um, really what they're doing here in Nehemiah 10 is making a commitment to hold up a commitment. Because the commitment's already been made. The commitment was made by their ancestors way back in the Exodus. And now they're recommitting themselves to following God and making that personal decision for themselves renewing their obedience to him. And what we see here is that because God's ways are just and right, God's people are expected to live a life committed to him in his strength. The way of God is inarguably and and it's inarguably good and always right because God is always good and God is always right. So to follow him is 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 the way that that people of God, those who belong to him, should go. And so we as God's people, if we know the Lord is our Savior, are expected to live a life that, that, it, that lives out that commitment, that every day of our lives we, we work through that. And here in Jerusalem, God's people were doing the same. I mean, they, they belong to God. They're the chosen people. They're the Israelites. They're the Jews. Uh, They're the seed of Abraham, and and so it's illustrated in their lives, but it has applications to our life as well, because you and I may not be Jews, but we are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ if we know him as our Savior, and so we belong to God, and we're expected to live in a way that honors and pleases him as well. And so let's break apart this chapter, really just two big sections in this chapter tonight, and we'll, we'll look at them as we go through, and the first is this, that there is a response of the people of commitment in verses 1 through 29. Let's look at those verses together and see who these people are that entered into this commitment. Actually, back up to chapter 9 and look at verse 38. And because of all of this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. Now those who placed their seal on the document were Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah, Siriah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pasher, Amariah, Malkijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Haram, Meramoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamim, Meziah, Bilgai, and Shemaiah. These were the priests. The Levites, Jeshua, the son of Ezaniah, Benui, the sons of Hinnadad, and Cadmiel. Their brethren, Shebaniah, Hodijah, Kelida, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rahab, Hashabiah, Zachar, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodijah, Beni, and, ben- and-, and Beninu. The leaders of the people, Parash, Pehath, Moab, Elam, Zatu, Beni, Bunny, Asgad, B- Babai, Adonijah, Bigvi, 
Aden, Ater, Hezekiah, Azer, Hodijah, Hashum, Bazai, Hereph, Anathoth, Nabai, Magpiash, Hashulam, Hezer, Meshazabel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Aniah, Hoshia, Hananiah, Hashub, Haluhesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashabana, <clears throat> Messiah, Ahijah, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Haram, and Bana. <coughs> now the rest of the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his ordinance and his statutes. So we have here the response of commitment by the people that they came before the Lord after they had seen what they had done and gathered together to commit to following and obeying him. And throughout these last couple of chapters in Nehemiah, chapter 8 and chapter 9, we've seen the work of what we would call revival in the hearts of God's people. And it is definitely, as the word implies, a coming to spiritual life again. That, that is what's implied by revival. You have to have some kind of life there to revive. And we see here that, that, that God's people are coming to spiritual life again within Jerusalem. Because first there was a, an incredible attention given to the word of God. For any revival to take place, that is step one. The word of God must be given utmost precedence in the lives of God's people. Because revival isn't man's work, it's God's work. He's the one who has to do it. The word, uh, nothing is worthy of taking its place and nothing is can so keep a follower of God walking with him as God's word. And we, we looked in chapter 8 and saw the hunger of the people for the word of God. How they turned out to hear the word of God. How they came out day after day and during the feast they came and continued to listen, wanting to know what God had said. They heard it taught, they heard it explained, uh, and, and they grew in it. A sure sign of spiritual complacency is an apathetic attitude towards God's word. Do you want to know if you're spiritually complacent? Do you want to know if you're not really growing? How do you feel about God's word? Instead of our life and our breath, it becomes our duty and our drudgery. Instead of a core of our being, it becomes a chore we need to do. How you feel about the Bible, how you feel about spending time with God, how you look at spending time with God on a regular basis says a lot about the condition of your heart. And if you really don't care about the word of God, if you really don't think you need the word of God in your life, then you and God have some, some things you need to work out. Because you cannot survive, we looked at that during that message, you cannot survive in this world growing in the things of God without the word of God. It just doesn't work that way. And of course, our flesh will fight us every step of the way. 
Satan will use the well-worn paths of sin that we grew up in or, or, or we spent time in before we were saved even in God's people, to draw them away from their source of strength. But the renewing of God in our lives is well able to overcome Satan's lies and deception that draws us away from his word. So the first thing that we see when it comes to revival is this attention to the word of God. But second, we saw the corporate brokenness over sin that led to confession. And that naturally follows because When we are truly focused on the word of God and we are truly focused on who God is and what he said and who we are in light of the word of God, then we're going to be hit very hard with who we are, literally our sin we're going to see. And we're going to be moved by the word of God to deal with it because God and his word tells us how to deal with sin. God doesn't just say, hey, you have sin. And we say, okay, you're right. No, he then tells us what to do with that, how we are to do something with our sin and to confess it and make it right. God's word must be the focus for it is God's word alone that can show us our true sin problems and their solutions. And in chapter 9, we examine this proper response to sin. The people cried out to God, remembering who he was, extolling his justice on sin, and they cried out to him again for help. When the people begin to realize, when we begin to realize who God is and what he does, then we also realize that God, as we talked about this morning, is a God of grace and love and mercy and reaches out to those who repent and turn to him. And now the third step of true revival is seen because the people will now do something with which they have heard and felt conviction over. They gather together to make a covenant before God, committing in specific ways how they will obey him. And, and don't get the idea here that they just came up with all of these things on the spot, you know. They said, well, we need to obey God. Let's just make a list of some things that we feel like would be good. No, everything they commit here has its roots and its basis in the law of God. This is what God said they needed to do, and this is what they were not doing. So it all goes back to that. And this is the full picture of repentance. Because we talked about properly responding to sin, and, and, the, and the picture is that we repent from our sin is that we turn. We don't just say we're sorry. We don't just say, God, I'm sorry I did that. But we turn away from sin, and we turn to God. And until we are willing to leave our sin behind and commit ourselves to following God, there is no true repentance. You're just sorry you got caught. You're just sorry that you feel bad. You're just sorry that the consequences came into your life. True repentance is in God's help and in God's will and in God's power, leaving that behind and doing what is right. That's what we need in our lives. We need to repent. We need to turn away from what is wrong and embrace what is right. It's a commitment to obedience, which God requires of those who belong to him. And this is not a a works-based righteousness or a legalism. It's not saying to God, well, we're going to do these things that You have commanded because we want you to be happy with us. No, it's saying that you have commanded these things and we love you and you've called for our obedience to commit to you and we're going to obey. The highest expression of love in our relationship to God is obedience to his word. 
Today, as we respond to the authority of God's word, we don't enter into these things like covenants per se as the people of Israel here did. Because in Christ, there is fulfillment of the covenant in salvation. Yet, in love, we should respond in obedience to God. Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments. He said that in the New Testament, by the way, in light of the salvation that was to come. And though the ceremonial and civil parts of the law have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, we still have an obligation to live out the moral law of God in a way that reflects him to a lost and dying world. Our lives should be lives of testimony to others around us that we belong to him. And Now let's see the specifics of those who are involved. We have those who signed this document. Now, it was not possible for everyone there in the city to sign this covenant. Yet all the people would agree to abide by this covenant in obedience to God. And that reminds us that obedience to God is expected both on a personal and a corporate level. I mean, think about even in our own setting today in a, in a local church. Believers who sit here in our local church are responsible to God for their individual obedience to God. Your walk with the Lord is something very personal. Your walk with the Lord is something you have to own. Your walk with God is something you have to live out on a daily basis. And then corporately, as a local body of believers, as a local manifestation of the entire church that's made up of the redeemed, we're responsible to do things in a way that honors and glorifies God as well. And how does that best work out in concert? Well, it it starts with the leadership of a local church walking with the Lord. And it trickles all the way down to all who are here. That we have to do things in a way that honors and glorifies and obeys him. The list then of these people begins with the civilian leadership of the city. With Nehemiah and Zedekiah. And though this would be normal formality. This is more than legal formality. Because a true leader for the Lord takes the first step necessary to do the things of God, and he rallies others around him to follow him by committing to doing what is right. And as we've read the story of Nehemiah and studied over the last several months, we begin to see he is such a one, and he shows up here again at the beginning of the list. And then you begin to work your way through this list. After Nehemiah and Zedekiah, the civil leadership, you come to the priests. You come to the spiritual leadership of the city, of the country and nation. Now, most of these are family names and not individual names. The beginning of the list talks about Sariah. That's a family name, and and probably the one to be most familiar with is Ezra, the priest, belonged to this family. Most uh, of these spiritual leaders, their commitment to doing what is right was also vital. Because the people there in Jerusalem, the people of the nation of Israel depended on these men to do what was right to lead the worship of God in the nation. Later in Israel's history, there would be a great failure on the part of the priests to do what was right. 
And if there is failure in that part of Israel's leadership, there is real trouble in the nation of Israel. Third, we see the Levites, those who assisted in the worship of God. Seventeen names are listed. Some of these are family names again. We've run into several of these names as they are the ones who helped explain and apply the law of God to the people in chapter 8. We run into this guy named Hashabiah. He was mentioned as one in chapter 3 who helped build, rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. So many of these have already served the people well, and now they commit themselves by continuing to obey, or to continuing to obey God's word. And then the specific listing rounds out with 44 more names, which we read all of them, okay? And those 44 names are these noble families, these ones of, of, of some kind of high influence. Some are listed in, in the book of Ezra as those who initially returned to the city. Some are listed as rebuilders of the wall in Nehemiah chapter 3. And, and these were meant to represent the entire People. They, they were representative of everyone who was there signing and committing to this covenant. It's an incredible show of commitment to the Lord. It is a recognition that God has expe- expectations of his people in obedience. And it goes beyond recognizing that we need to obey to engaging in that obedience. And, and you even read down here, that these people, it says, you know, the rest of the people, they had separated themselves from, from the people of the lands. They had separated themselves unto the law of God. And all of those who had knowledge and understanding, we get the idea that, that it's basically anybody who is old enough to understand what was going on is making this commitment. And this engagement is more than just saying, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. Yeah, sure. I mean, if that's what you want us to do, we'll, we'll, we'll find a way to do it. No. It's a commitment to the consequences even of their disobedience. And we see in, in verse 29 that there's a great solemnity to this covenant. <clears throat> All the rest of the people in verse 28 and 29 joined on this covenant with those who had formerly signed it. They heard the terms and they agreed to them. All who could understand and know what was being committed did so. And here we see the solemn reminder of what that is. In verse 29, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, a servant of God, and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. They entered into a curse and an oath, Nehemiah says. This indicates that they understood that there are consequences for disobedience. And it really harkens back to the law of God and specifically the book of of Deuteronomy where before the people enter the promised land, Moses has all of these last things that he wants the people to remember, these these last messages, these last reminders of of the, the, the law of God and the covenant of God and how if you don't obey God, there will be consequences for that because God brings consequences on his people when they disobey him that he may draw them back to himself. They responded to the authority of Scripture in their lives, even in this commitment. For God does promise punishment on sin, and, and the people embrace God's promise 
by making one of their own. They promised to do all of God's commands and to observe all of his ordinances and statutes. And that's a reminder for us that the word of God requires our entire being. Following God requires everything we are. We don't get to open God's word with a pick-and-choose buffet mentality. Well, as long as I like it, and as long as I agree with it, and as long as it doesn't hit too close to home, or I have to give up something that I think I really like, I'm okay with it. That's not how we approach the Word of God. We approach the Word of God with our entire life out on the table and say, God, whatever it is you want me to do, I'm going to do. Whatever it is in my life that needs to change, I'm going to change. Whatever it is in my life that doesn't please you, root it out of my life, that's how we're to approach the Word of God, humbly and openly. And that's a really hard thing to do, right? That preaches easy and lives really hard. Because we know that's right, but it gets really uncomfortable when God uses the word to begin to dig things out of our life that we didn't really even sometimes realize were there. And then all of a sudden, there's a lot more comfort, so to speak, in our lives of not doing those things. Of saying, well, it's not really that big of a deal. And unfortunately... Many Christians spend their lives in this very mindset. We look for ways that we can enjoy what we feel is okay. Well, that's not really that bad, so I'm not really going to pay attention to what God says about that. I really like that. It's kind of the pet thing that I want to have in my life. Or we dismiss clear commands and examples in Scripture as, well, that's your opinion. Or that's the way you interpret the Bible. <clears throat> I said this morning, and I'll say it again, truth doesn't change. There's no such thing as your truth and my truth and his truth and her truth and their truth and our truth. Truth is truth. And God's word is the ultimate truth. And we can say what we want, but in the end, it's just an excuse to satiate our own feelings of guilt. Nothing that you and I feel is worth being right about is greater than actually being right with God. Sometimes we hold on to something because, well, I just want to feel like I'm right about this. I just want to feel okay with this. Nothing that you're holding on to is worth actually being right with what God says. And as long as we hold on to this, we sacrifice being right. It takes humility to fall before him and rely on him in obedience. It takes specifically applying God's word to our lives that we may indeed be counted as faithful, obedient servants. And the people do that. They get very specific with God. And over the next few verses, the next ten verses here, they specifically lay out how they're going to obey God and his word. And we see here the details of the covenant that they make 
in verses 30 through 39. And the first thing they commit to is a family purity in verse 30. They say there, we would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. So what they're committing to is the separation from mixed marriages within the nation, within themselves. God had been very specific with his people when they prepared to enter the promised land. They were not to have marital relationships with people of the land that God was giving them. They were not to marry the people there. They were not to give their children away and marriage them. They were not to take unto them any of these people. <coughs> and if you go back to the book of Genesis, you'll find that this has been something that even the patriarchs had recognized beginning with Abraham. And to our Western 2022 ears, this is something that sometimes doesn't hit very well, right? This is something that, that, that in our culture we live in really sounds like racism, okay? But that's not what it is. This is not a racial issue. This is a spiritual issue. It says, one author says this, in the ancient world, when two people married, they swapped their idols and gave them a prominent place in the home. See, God was clear. There was to be nothing that contested with his honor and his glory in the lives of the Israelites. And guess what? If you go in there and begin to marry the people, the Canaanites, who don't worship God, guess what you're going to start doing? You're going to start worshiping their idols. Guess who you're going to turn away from? You're going to turn away from God. And perhaps this is illustrated nowhere greater than in the life of King Solomon. King Solomon was the king who had it all. Nothing he desired was denied him and just like his father, he had a thing for multiple women in his life. And you read about that in the life of Solomon, that he had 700 wives and 300 porcupines, concubines. And you see how he gave himself to these things and his wealth. He said in 1 Kings 11.4, it's written, For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father, David. Solomon actually funded the worship of false gods in his life. He gave his loyalty to those who had, he allowed to pull his heart away from God. And you read the book of Ecclesiastes, and you look at it, and you just wonder, how did somebody get to this place? This is how you get there. You quit following and serving and obeying God. And you go after these things. This, he did exactly what God told him not to do. And then, of course, you fast forward to the divided kingdom. And there was this guy named Ahab in the northern kingdom of Israel. And the disaster he reigned down in Israel when he married Jezebel, who was the daughter of the priest of Baal. See, the basic unit of any society is the home. And if we're going to see God do a mighty work, and we talk about this all the time, we want God to do a mighty work in our church. We want God to do a mighty work in our community. We want God to do a mighty work in our state, in our country, in our world, and on and on and on. But it has to start in your home. 
If you want God to do a mighty work outside of your home, you need to see God and pray for God and, and be submissive and ready for God to do a mighty work inside the walls of your home. It has to start there and work its way out. But oftentimes, we pray for God to do a mighty work in somebody else's home, right? The disparagement of male leadership, the embracing of divorce as a genuine option for people, gender confusion, and all of these things that we face are all attacks that are launched on the most basic unit, and that is the family. These things are not seen, are seen not just in the world, but they're also being seen in Christian homes as well. We should be a shining the light of the gospel into these lives, helping them see the hope and forgiveness of God, not joining and embracing these things in our lives. Our homes must be sacred grounds of worship to God. We must commit to making our marriages and our families devoted to God and his word. Therefore, we do not tolerate sin within these things. And that begins from the very beginning with that person that you choose to spend the rest of your life with. We got some kids in here. We got some teens some are not, who, who have not chosen a life's mate yet. This goes specifically out to you. The rest of you who, it's over with. No, I'm just kidding. The rest of you, we'll talk about that in a second, okay? But the person that you choose to marry, the person that you choose to commit to spend the rest of your life with is an important decision. The old saying is, opposites attract. And while that may be true for things like personality or interests or skills, and you see that time and time and again, the things that matter most, the things about the core of who we are, there's no room for opposites attracting. Christians today are under an obligation to remember that they have a duty to think about whom they marry. It is not prudent nor biblical for a Christian to marry an unbeliever. And it doesn't matter what you may find attractive about another individual. If they do not know the Lord, it is not a healthy thing for a Christian to engage in that relationship. Very plain and simple. No, it is possible that two people get married and they're both unbelievers and one of them comes to know the Lord. That's a totally different instance. Where now there's, there's this mission field that this person goes home to every day trying to be faithful to the Lord and win that spouse to God. But as a Christian, you should never knowingly build your family on this scenario because it does not end well. And people give all types of reasons for why bringing sin into their home lives is okay. And we'll talk about that in a minute. You know, I, I talk about... If you haven't gotten married, if you haven't chosen someone that you're married yet, and some of you are a little young, so it's okay you haven't done that, okay? We're, we're good with that, okay? You need to think about these things. Now, there are those of us in the room, we, we have made that decision. We have committed to that person. It is just as important that we also do not bring sin into our lives, that we do not introduce these things that God has said we should not do. We must make the same commitment, and we must make the same priority in our lives to obey God. And again, we, we bring 
all types of excuses, really, why it's okay. In the end, we think something like this. Well, I mean, in the end, it'll all work out. Listen, the question isn't, will it work out? The question is, will your family enjoy God's blessing and fulfill his will for your life as a Christian by doing X, Y, Z? God calls us to live for him and his strength and his wisdom. And as the Israelites promised to guard the purity of the family, so should we promise to God that we will guard the purity of our family. That if we don't have a, a husband or a wife or a family yet, that when we make that decision, we will do so seeking the will of God in our lives in these things. And if we do, if we, if we are in, in the midst of, of a marriage or raising kids or whatever it may be, we, we will make that commitment to following and obeying God in however he says we're to do that. And maybe you sit here and you're on down the road of sin and you know it. There's still time. There's hope in the grace of God to come back and do what is right. So the first thing we see that the people commit to is family purity. And secondly, in verse 31, is Sabbath reverence. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we would forego the seven Seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. That's verse 31. And so in the second, in the second reference to their lives regarding other peoples in the land, we see the Jews' commitment to revering and observing the Sabbath day as God commanded. Warren Wiersbe said the law of Moses prohibited God's people from living like the Gentiles, although it didn't stop the Jews from being good neighbors or even good customers. In, in, in the culture of God's people and in the, in the economy of God that he had set up, the Sabbath was more than just a day of rest. It was a day that was set aside as a sign of the covenant between God and his people. As we read in Exodus 3, verses 16 and 17, Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. It was a day of, of intentional worship and rest by God's people. And, and God modeled this in his creation when on the seventh day he rested, not because he was exhausted, but because his creation was complete and he was setting a pattern for his people to follow. So the people also committed to observing this Sabbath every week. And then... To observe what God prescribed as the seventh year of rest for the land. And then every 50th year, the year of jubilee that God had prescribed. It also extended to things like the debts that were owed to the people. And, and really what this is, above all else, is an expression not just of obedience, but of trust in God. Because here's the thing. You work, work, work to provide for your family, and one day a week, what are you not doing? You're not working. And you, you plant and you reap and you plant and you reap every year in an agricultural society. And every seventh year, you're not supposed to plant and reap. You're supposed to let the field lie fallow. That takes a lot of trust in God. 
And then you get to the 49th year, which is a seventh year, and you don't reap and you sow. And you get to the year of the 50th year with the Jubilee. So now you've got two years where you don't plant and reap. You've really got to trust that God's going to provide for you, that God's going to take care of you. It's an expression of we're going to trust God and follow him. We're going to obey him. In our world today, the ceremonial aspects of these laws are gone because they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You and I, we're not called to observe the Sabbath. But we do worship the Lord on the first day of the week. The Sabbath is Saturday, you know. And we worship God on Sunday. We worship God primarily on Sunday, one of the biggest reasons why, because that's the day of the week the Lord rose. And every time we meet together, we, we celebrate that, that he rose on the first day. That's why the early church began meeting on those days. And on this day of worship, it should be strange to find a believer not enjoying the fellowship of fellow believers and seeking the food of God's word. It is a witness to a godless society to see Bible-preaching churches full of God's people on a day set aside to worship Him. But oh, how quickly we give that day away to other things. It's just that, you know, second day of the weekend... It's the day that, that, that we got to go and we got to do this. It's the day we got to run down here. It's the day that we got to watch this or be a part of this. It's the day we got to have to get ready for the work week. Family, personal pursuits, entertainment, fellowship, and more take us away from the family of God that we so desperately And what you see in both of these first two commitments, both in, in the marriage, the, the family purity, and in the revering of God's Sabbath and, and worshiping Him, you both, in both of these things, you get this idea of separation. The Jews were called to separate. And God has also called on believers to separate as well. And here's a great word, separation that I think is an often misunderstood and misapplied word, and therefore it's a, a word we just, we just stay away from. Because we get this idea that maybe it's because we've seen it misapplied and, and, and done in a wrong way, but we get this idea that separation is, you know, proclaiming judgment on other people, pulling to our, inward to ourselves. You know what biblical separation is? Biblical separation is total devotion to God, as one author put it, no matter what the cost. Because separation, we, we get this idea that separation is all about what we're leaving behind, what we're separating from. And, and that is certainly part of the equation, right? You talk about something as practical as separating from the people of the land that God told them not to marry. You're leaving those people behind, but you're separating yourself not just from something, but to something else. And that is to God. In the same way, we are called to separate ourselves from sin, and we are called to separate ourselves unto God. It shouldn't be odd for a Christian to separate from sin in his life. It should be normal. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't engage with unbelievers. 
that we walk around and we think, oh, yeah, look at all those bad people. We don't go near them. You know, we don't talk to them. It's us four no more, the frozen chosen, right? Where was Jesus Christ? He was with the sinners, showing them their need of the Savior. Because we've seen separation carried out in an unloving way, we have a tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And we realize we, we can and we must practice biblical separation in our lives in order to obey God. And now we're going to turn the corner here and we're going to kind of cover these last few things. It won't take as long as we go through these last few things that the people commit themselves to. Because they committed themselves to family purity, to Sabbath reverence, and then next we see they committed themselves to the temple tax in verses 32 and 33. Also, we make an ordinance for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the set feast, for the holy things, for the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of our God." So the people are committing to pay the tax that was necessary for the services of the temple. This tax was one-third of a shekel a year and was used to make sure the temple could operate as God had commanded. Because all of these things that God said are supposed to be a part of that, they do take money to make them happen. It is interesting to note that in Exodus, God prescribed this tax for the tabernacle as a half a shekel, not a third of a shekel. I've done some reading. I, no one has a great idea why it was changed to a third of a shekel. It may be different because what was prescribed in Exodus was prescribed at a time of census, and this wasn't a census. It may be because the Jerusalem and the Babylonian shekels were different in their valuation, and you remember now they live in the Persian Empire. Or because maybe they made some adjustment because of the times in which they lived. I tend to think that's the weakest argument here because the people are trying to obey God and everything he said to do, so I don't think they're going to take the word of God and, well, we're going to change that one, you know. What they do show in this, though, that they valued the central place of worship to God. The temple was central to their lives because that was the only way to be right with God and obey him. They had to go to the temple and worship in the way God prescribed worship. They had to go and offer the sacrifices that God prescribed for them to offer. The priests had to offer those things on the day of atonement that the people could be right with God. So therefore, it was vital they obey God in these things and keep the temple operational. Now, you and I need no temple to come to God. You and I need no priests to enter the throne of grace, for we are all priests by the grace of God. But God has called us to engage with our local church and to worship Him and further His kingdom there. Furthermore, the people commit to these temple provisions in verse 34. We cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God, according to our Father's houses at the appointed times year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. The commitment to the temple by the people went beyond merely paying their tax. 
So the temple, as we said, is central to the life of the Jews. Therefore, there are many things that relate to the temple. And, and so second is this provision of the wood. This is a practical need to keep the supply of wood up for the burning of the sacrifices. Think about how many sacrifices were offered every day in the temple and yearly. And then the things that had to be burning all the time, as God has said, you know, the, the incense that had to be offered. You, you know what you need to have that many fires? You need a lot of wood. You're going to need a lot of fuel. And so, therefore, God's people could be involved making sure this happened, even if they themselves could not enter the temple or engage in the services of the priests. You know, think about it in our context today, being part of a church is more than sending in a tithe check or filling a pew once a week. It's engaging with the people, helping meet the needs of others and of the church. It's contributing our time and our talents for the kingdom. If I can very candidly say it this way, you may not be called to preach, but you can sure help your pastor do that by taking other things on around a church, just very practically. And I appreciate the people in our church that take on very practical needs of our church. And if you'd like to be involved in that way, okay, here's your commercial for tonight. I'll be happy to talk to you about that, right? These, these people were doing something very practical, very just, hey, we need, we need to bring this wood to provide for the temple. And then the last thing here in this chapter, or I'm sorry, not the last thing, the next to the last thing the, the, is, it's the third thing that has to do with the temple is this idea of the first fruits and the firstborn. And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of all trees year by year to the house of the Lord to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God to bring the first fruits of our dough our offerings the fruit of all from all kinds of trees the new wine and oil to the priests to the storerooms of the house of our God and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites for the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. So here is, is this idea of the first fruits and the firstborn that God called on from his people. God commanded that these things belong to him. So the people, what they would do is they would surrender the first fruits of their crops and the first uh, 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 fruits of their livestock to God. It was giving of the best to him. Oftentimes these first fruits indicated what the rest of the harvest even would be like. Now God's salvation of the firstborn in the land of Egypt during the 10th plague also meant, and from his law, that these belonged to him. And most often what happened is the firstborn would not be given and left at the temple. Instead, God had prescribed an offering that would be offered to redeem the firstborn back from him to the family. But in so doing, it was a reminder that all life comes from God. Our lives belong to him, and our redemption of our souls through Jesus, should lead us to declare with Paul, as he does in Philippians 1.21, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
as long as we live on this earth as a Christian, we belong to him. We serve him. Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So no, we don't, we don't take our first fruits and firstborn down to the temple. But our very lives belong to the God who has redeemed us from our sin. And we serve him with those things. And then lastly, we see this idea of the tithes that started at the end of verse 37, the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. And the priest, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive, the, receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of God, to the rooms of the storehouse. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain of the new wine and the oil in the, to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are, and we will not neglect the house of our God. So lastly, the people committed to tithe to the Levites as God commanded. It's very interesting, by the way. The people would tithe, which is giving a tenth of of their things, to the Levites, and then God commanded that the Levites would tithe to the temple. So there's a tithe on a tithe. And this would support the work of the men in the temple who did this full time. Now, today, believe it or not, today a tithe is not commanded by God on his people. This is part of that that ceremonial part of the law of God. Now, don't let that stop you, okay? No, I I joke, but we see, because we see giving to the the work of God is, is pictured over and over again in the church. We are called to give. And, and I tell people, hey, if you don't know where to start, if someone asks you that, I think a tithe is a great place to start. It's a pattern seen in the Old Testament. But the pattern from the Old Testament and the New Testament is that when we get to the New Testament, the standard goes up, not down. And in the end, the question should not be, how much will God get from us? But the question is, how much of God's do we really need to keep in our lives? The people's commitment to worship, to the worship and work of God was of utmost importance. These whole, these four last things. So the first two, we said, dealt with separation from people in the land. But these last four, the temple tax, the provisions, the first fruits, the firstborn, and the tithes, all deal with the temple life, with the worship of God. It's central to their way of life. It's necessary for them. And what we see, as we said at the beginning, that because God's ways are just and right, God's people are expected to live a life committed to him in his strength. A proper realization of what God has said and who we are should always lead us to this point of commitment. And then hopefully not just to commitment, but, un- but into following through in that. God is interested in a change of heart in our lives, but he's just as interested in the follow-up and the change of actions. Our hearts cannot be convicted of sin without it influencing our outward behaviors. So are you willing to commit to God in these things? Are you willing to prioritize him and the calling on your life and leave sin? God's not looking for trite words or empty promises but to those who truly follow him and obey him no matter what. 
He has shown us what is right. He has given us the help we need to obey, obey, and he calls for our submission to him in these things. And just like the Israelites all those years ago stood in Jerusalem making commitments to serve God, we too can commit to serving God with our lives and follow through on it. And we'll see as we go through Nehemiah how the people do in these things and be challenged to that in this end. But just maybe walk away with this, this conviction on our lives tonight that that next step that God brings us to as we see an importance of his word and begins to give us our sin is to do something with it, to bring us to a point of action, to prioritize his word and living for him. Father, we thank you for this time now we've had to look at your word together tonight. We ask that you would use it in our hearts, that you would draw from us a commitment to serving you, and that we would follow through on such things. Lord, we realize that the power and the ability to do so comes from you and you alone. And may we truly live lives that lift you up before others. Be with us now as we go from this place. Would you continue to do your work in our hearts? Would you show us what it is we need to change in our, li- in our personal lives, in our families, in our relationships to better reflect you? And may we do it. And may we have a great and wonderful week serving you that we may be back here together on Wednesday and Sunday worshiping together. In your name we pray. Amen.